Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Well, as you can see from the slide here that we're considering Titus chapter 2. You heard it read just a minute ago. Um, we think that Titus was perhaps uh, written by Paul while he was in jail in Rome uh, around the 60s, about 60 years after Jesus uh, died. And he's been writing to this uh, group of people in Crete, and he's giving them instructions, particularly to a young man called Titus. Uh, and he's trying to say to him, this is the way I want you to teach people. This is the way I want you to uh, think about things. And there's this great link throughout Titus, which is to do with faith and practice. In other words, this is who you are. This is how to live out your faith. And so it makes sense that uh, we're going to look at this idea of a faith that trains. And the particular words that we're thinking about come from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God appeared, bringing us salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and um, worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So that's where the theme of what we're talking about uh, is coming from. Uh, but actually, what, one of the interesting things to do here is as we think about the whole book is just to notice uh, actually this idea of training or words associated with training is throughout the book. Uh, it's particularly there in Titus chapter 2, but this sense of training. And, and when you think about it, that makes total sense. Uh, if you think about the Christian life, one of the things that we're doing is moving from one place to another. We're moving from one place, one way of thinking, one way of living, one way of doing, one way of being to another place, to another way of doing, being, thinking, acting, living. Uh, Christianity does not leave you where you are. It changes you. Expect to be changed. Expect to be changed in ways you didn't expect to be changed. And that's why we need training. That's why we have this sense of moving from one place to another. Now, as Paul considers these things, um, he wants us to think about a grace that trains. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to think about it in three different ways. Why we need a grace that trains, what's the content of a grace that trains, and how does grace train? Well, if we turn back to those verses uh, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, what we notice is um, these words, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to do two things, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and secondly, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's what grace is do training us to do. That's why we need a grace that trains. It's a bit like saying we're moving from one diet to another. It's training us to have a different kind of diet, a, a healthy diet. So, for example, imagine you, you spend all your life drinking bubble tea, goreng pisang, ice kacang, and lying on the lounge all day. That would be one kind of diet. But imagine if all of a sudden you said, okay, actually, I want to be healthy and I'm going to drink water and 
and Kung Kong and Durian and start exercising. What would you be doing? You would be saying no to some things and yes to other things. Uh, you probably shouldn't eat too much durian. It will make you large. But nonetheless, you can see how you can shift from one kind of diet to another diet, from one kind of living that's not healthy to a kind of living that is healthy. And that's the point. Uh, that's the point that Paul is making here. You need to say no to some things and yes to other things, to renounce some things and to say yes and live in different ways. Now, the kinds of things we need to say no to are identified in passages either side um, of Titus chapter 2. So, in fact, in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we read, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred by, uh, hated by others, hating one another. Now, what you notice there is the kinds of words that you, you would use to describe uh, heart language. And what I mean by that is language that says passions and desires. Uh, this is the kind of language that the Bible uses when it says our hearts are involved. Um, and one way someone has put it is to say that what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Okay, so our passions and desires, if we listen to them and keep taking them in a particular direction, will determine what we choose to do and will justify it. We'll say we can do that because, and we make up a reason. Now, that can happen in lots of different ways. Um, and the problem actually is not so much about the idea of passion and desires. We all have passions and desires. But it's taking those passions and desires in a direction that takes the good gifts that God has given us uh, in a way that leads us against God and what he's called us to be and to do. So, for example, you might have a passion and a desire that drives a certain ability, a certain way of doing things, uh, and it's a gift. God has given you a particular gift in your area of work. You're very good at talking to people, and so God has placed you in a particular situation situation where you talk with people, you support them and care for them. Or you're very good at numbers and God has placed you in accounting and you're doing all kinds of, uh, bless the accountants. Um, I'm not an accountant, but bless the accountants. God has placed you there to work with numbers and to do really well in that kind of area. But what can happen is we can take those good gifts, those good things that God has given us, uh, those passions for those kinds of areas, and turn them into things like a drive for success. And we can justify that drive for success by saying, well, God gave me this gift and I'm good at it. And so I'm going to use that. And then all of a sudden we're destroying our families and our friends and the people around us and not able to contribute to the life of others. We've justified the gift that God has given us and we've chose to, chosen to use it in a particular way, but it's our passions and desires driving us in the wrong direction. Or perhaps we enjoy the gift of encouraging others but that turns into a gift of seeking approval. Or not a gift, actually. It turns into a desire to choose approval of other people. And so instead of encouraging, we, we start encouraging other people so that we get approval. You can see how that desire, that good gift that God has given us, takes us in the wrong direction. Or perhaps we take the good gifts that God has given us in terms of food and clothing and housing and those kinds of things and the right desires to have those sorts of things. 
and then extend that further and continuing to take those things further and further so we have more and more and more and more taking over our lives in that sense. What the passage here is telling us is that we were once belonging to those things. Those were the things that used to control us, made us slaves. We weren't free. We we're enslaved by these passions and desires. But because of what Christ has done on the cross, because of his death and resurrection, we have been freed from these passions and desires, controlling our lives in the wrong direction. Now, the truth is, that is, that is, that is true. <laughs> that, is, that is a thing. That is something that God has done in us. But sometimes a kind of shadow, if you like, remains over us we kind of still feel a bit trapped by those passions and desires. Let me give you an example. I once knew a man who um, had become a Christian. His whole family had become a Christian. And, but in his former way of life, one of the things that controlled his life was fear. Um, and that was expressed in, in the way that he had charms at home. You know, things that he held on to, that he believed if he, that he, if he worshipped those charms, um, and he held on to those charms, uh, nothing bad would happen to him. And so when he became a Christian, he continued on in his Christian life, but then got stuck. And what became apparent was he'd kept a lot of those charms. Because even though he'd been freed by Jesus, he was still fearful he was still uh, ruled by passions and desires that if he threw out those charms, the spirits would come and get him and come and get his family. And so what he had to do is to seek forgiveness, to throw out those charms, those things which were enslaving his heart and truly experience the freedom that Christ had given him. You see how it works? We can sometimes let those past things override us. Now, there's a second way, and the second way uh, is actually in the passage just before Titus chapter 2. And um, it's connected to the passions and desires because what happens is when you have passions and desires which are moving you in the wrong direction, if a false teacher comes along and says, I can meet those needs and desires in you, I can help you with that, then you start following them and that's what's actually happened in crete uh, basically there are some false teachers who've turned up there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers especially those of the circumcision party they must be silenced uh, since they're upsetting whole families and teaching uh, for shameful gain that they ought what they ought not to teach now we don't know a lot of detail about exactly what they were teaching uh, it seems like some form of judaistic religious kind of workspace thing um, but what it was doing is meaning that people were being tied up. People were becoming slaves to something other than following Jesus. And the reason false teachers work is because they appeal to our passions and desires. They appeal to those things that we feel like we need. And so we end up following them. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we really need our churches together to be helping one another in this area. Because it's so easy to go online and listen to a preacher tell you what you want to hear. 
um, and tell you what your desires and passions would like. Uh, that's particularly ca the case with prosperity preaching, isn't it? Where you feel like you need money and security and health and all those kinds of things. And someone says, oh, yes, you can get it this way. But it ends up being a false teaching. So back to our point. The reason that we need a grace that trains is because we need to be able to say no, renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Passions that have led us in the wrong direction. I kind of like a prayer written by Thomas Cramner in the 16th century. Uh, it says this, and I think it kind of sums up uh, where we find ourselves so often. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sh sheep. We have followed too much the dev devices and desires of our own hearts. It's picking up that language again. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. See how it's picking up the whole of life, not just the things we've done, but the things we've left undone. And then this phrase, which I think picks up what this passage is about. And there is no health or soundness in us. That's why we need to be trained by grace. Of course, uh, Paul goes on to talk about the idea that we need a healthy diet. We need to reject things and say yes to other things. And so uh, he continues by telling us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Now, we're going to unpack that by going back to the beginning of Titus chapter 2 because we find these words. Uh, but as for you, teach what occurs with sound or healthy life-giving doctrines. So he's saying what to renounce, but he's also now going to say uh, what it is the ways that we can live, the way we can practice our faith that's going to be the change of diet, if you like, the way we can become more healthy in the future. But before we get there, I just want to take a step back and just acknowledge something about this training. Uh, we said before it's moving us from one place to another. And so that means it's going to affect the way we behave, what we think about relationships, even the way we think about time. And what's actually happening with time, you notice in the passages, statements about as we await the return of Jesus Christ, there's a kind of now, not yet aspect to this passage. It'll affect the way we use language and ideas. It will affect the structure of our reality. And by that, I just simply mean the Bible will bring us our attention to particular things and highlight particular relationships and ways of behaving that our own culture or our own background won't. Sometimes there's an overlap. Sometimes there are things that are consistent either way. But very often it will be highlighting things and putting emphasis on things that we didn't think of. And what's extraordinary about this is that it's more in line with the way God designed things and therefore more in line with being healthy or being more human. So if you want a healthy soul, if you want a healthy life in terms of living God's way, and I'm particularly talking about physical health, I'm talking about your soul and your the way of living, 
then what you will do is want to change this new diet. You want to take on this new diet because it's a way of living, a way of working, a way of structuring your life, of noticing particular relationships and particular things as God designed them. It's like finding the paths that God has given us to walk in and following those. And so when we come to consider this in Titus chapter 2, we're not going to cover everything in great detail. And you'll notice that uh, Paul is speaking to particular kinds of relationships, but you notice the kinds of things he's talking to. He's talking particularly to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and bond servants. Uh, that does not cover every kind of person in a church uh, or every kind of relationship. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't applications here that are broader uh, and not to say that there are other parts of the Bible which do apply in different ways. Uh, Paul is writing to some particular circumstances, and so we're just going to follow through what he says here. But you'll notice that what he's trying to do is train people in sound doctrine, and this sound doctrine leads to practice in the way that you do things. So, for example, as we begin, it begins by talking about older men. Now, some, for some reason, people keep putting me in that category. I don't know, I don't know why that's happened. It's, it's kind of crept up on me. I didn't really expect it to happen. Um, so this is pointed at me. It's a good place to start. Point at the preacher. Um, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, that sound in faith is picking up the first verse there, the idea of soundness, healthiness, in faith and that's what they are to be now that's that's fantastic news can i say because if you live in the culture that i'm in older white males people who look like me are often disregarded uh, we're seen as part of the problem in my last church i lived in an area which had most people under 50 and so I'm over 50. Uh, most people saw white Australian men as the problem with the system and causing all the problems in society. And so they would often disregard comments from people like me. The good news is the Bible says I have a job to do. I should ignore all those comments and just get on with being sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith. I've got a task. I don't need to take any notice of those comments because what matters is what God says. And that's how to frame my life. I've got a task to do. Of course, in some other cultures, men who are older are very revered. I worked, I planted a church with a Korean pastor and the Korean pastor told me that at the end of his life, he could not even, sorry, at the end of his father's life, he could barely walk into the same room because his father had to be so honoured. It's tragic, really quite sad, the distance between him and his son and his family. And the danger, of course, is if you're treated like that, you start using your power in ways that are not helpful that are ungodly. You start treating people around you like your servants. You start exercising power so your desires and your passions are met. 
and see what the Bible says. You're not to be like that. Your job is to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and in steadfastness. You see how it cuts across all cultures? All examples? It just cuts across and says, no, no, that's not, that's not your job. Focus on these things. Paul continues. Older women. Now, I, I must admit, I have to be really careful here. I've met some very fierce older women. Um, and so I want to be a little bit thoughtful about what I'm saying here. Uh, but look what it says. Older women, this is your job. Likewise, in a similar vein, in a similar way, you are to be reverent in behavior, uh, not sl uh, slanderers, gossipers, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and right. Teach what is good and right. Now, I want you to notice something here. Remember the pattern that we had before, putting off and putting on? That's what's happening here. Now, there seems to be some particular issues in Crete uh, for some of the older women there. Some of them seem to have been involved in gossiping um, and drinking too much. And so Paul says, actually, get rid of those things. That's not to be part of a healthy diet. On the other hand, what is helpful to be part of a, a healthy diet is to teach what is good and right. Now, this is intriguing, isn't it? Notice what it doesn't say. What it doesn't say is you have to force all the younger women who are under you to do things exactly the way you did them when you were their age or like your mother taught you to do. It doesn't say that, does it? Do you, do you see that there anywhere? Now, there might be some great ideas to pass on down through the generations, but it doesn't say that. And notice that it also doesn't say, and I know this is true in, in quite a few cultures that I come across, to tell the young women to fear their husbands because men can't be trusted. Now, sometimes there's good reason for that. I acknowledge that. Sometimes there's good reason people carry with them hurts and experiences from their own marriages and own lives, which are deeply wounding. And I get that. I don't want to be insensitive to that. But you see the main thrust of what Paul's saying here? He's saying if you're an older woman, concentrate on teaching what is good and right. The same ideas as sound doctrine. Concentrate on the actually the important things to pass on to younger women. The godly things. Help them grow in their faith. Now, he has some particular things in mind. And once again, this is a little bit of a minefield, depending on where you're coming from. Train, notice the word again, your, your, the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God might not be reviled. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details about uh, how submission works, uh, what it means to be um, working at home, those kinds of things. Um, there's a variety of different op opinions about how that actually works out. Um, my wife actually has worked out of the home most of her life, uh, but she's also been wonderful at home as well. So that's just where I'm coming from. Uh, and we've worked out what submission means in our particular family, but I, I guess that there's the different things that go on here. So please talk to your elders. It's just me passing it off to your elders. Uh, ask them what it means. Um, 
But I can say this, and I, I want to say this quite seriously. It does not mean letting yourself be abused. There is no evidence in the Bible at all that abuse is okay. And so, wives, if you find yourself in a situation where you're being abused, please get help. Because I don't think actually that's part of the marriage agreement. It's actually a breaking of the covenant, covenant as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you might speak to others who say something different, but that's, that's what I'm convinced of. It's not loving and cherishing. It's not having and holding. Secondly, men, if you are abusing your wife, go and get help. Because that's not a godly thing to do. You need help. Go and seek it. Just a, a strong word at that point, because I really think uh, this often is, goes unnoticed in churches, and I have nothing, no idea about your church. Uh, but it's something that we need to attend to as God's people because it's just simply not acceptable. Okay. But notice they're training younger women in practices, in ways of being in their marriages that actually bring an adornment to the word of God. You see the words there? That the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, that the word of God is trusted. So whatever that involves in terms of practice and all that kind of thing, it's actually meant to glorify God. Whatever that teaching looks like, it's actually meant to bring glory to God, not to the older women or to the young women. It's meant to bring glory to God. Okay. Likewise, younger men are to be self-controlled. Now, what I find really interesting about this is the next part of the verse I think is actually just aimed at Titus. So this is the only thing he has to say to young men. <laughs> By the way, you've got to be self-controlled. Um, although, it, what you know, in the end, what's interesting is if you look throughout the passage, you'll see self-controlled comes up all the time. And actually, if you think about the places where it doesn't appear, it still requires uh, self-control. And so in many ways, this passage is, is about self-control. It's about training to be self-controlled. Now, this idea of self-control is a little bit complicated. Um, and so I just want to spend a little bit moment thinking about it. Um, what does being self-controlled actually mean? Um, in some societies, being self-controlled means doing what everybody else, what your parents and what your culture expects you to do. Making sure you don't shame your family and those around you. Does that make sense? You know, like, so you control yourself in order that you don't shame others. In other places, it's more about our own desires and passions uh, and the way we express our feelings. So Tim Queller puts it this way, identity is not realised as in tradition, this is working about, writing about a Western context, identity is not realised as in traditional societies by sub sublimating our individual desires for the good of our family and people. Instead, we become ourselves only by asserting our individual desires against society by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anybody says. And so depending on which culture you come from, self-control feels like different things. 
how you self-control feels like a different things. But neither of those examples are actually an example of self-control. They're a control by something else, which is not the same self-control as what the Bible's talking about. Now, let me try and give you an illustration uh, that I think might help us. Um, you've been watching the football online. Australia scored a goal last night. Oh. Finally, we won a game. Yes. Um, I don't think we're going to go much further, but we're going to try. Um, but you notice what those athletes, those athletes who are particularly talented, they have disciplined themselves hour after hour after hour after year after year so that when they kick the ball, it looks beautiful. When they score a goal, you think, wow, how did that all come together? That they were in the perfect place to kick the ball or head the ball in. It's the self-discipline that went with that, that led to that beautiful moment. Now, what we're thinking about here is, in terms of self-control, is it's developing that kind of discipline in your Christian life that makes Jesus shine. That people look at you and go, wow, who is that person that you follow? And so self-control is really about following Jesus. It's about saying, I'm going to submit myself to him and live his way. I'm going to do things his way so that the game will look beautiful. So that he will look beautiful. And you see how that's a very different motive to just looking after your own desires and passions and doing what everybody else around you demands of you. It's a very different view of the world and what self-control looks like. Finally, um, just very briefly, um, as we think about this, oh, we've somehow paused. Can you just put on the next slide? Okay, this is about bond servants. I'm not going to say very much about this. Um, I think it's a, a, a kind of vexed area. Um, Don Carson uh, talks about it in these terms. Um, he talks about it this way. Please understand me, I'm not trying to romanticise slavery in every way. However, in Roman times, there were many labourers who were slaves. There were others who were equivalent to distinguished PhDs who were teaching families, and there was no association with a particular race of slavery. Now, that's, that's one take of what we mean by bond servants. I think this is a whole area that needs a further discussion. I think probably what the important thing we can do in terms of uh, looking at a grace that trains is that is this way of getting along with those who are superior to you, which reflects uh, who God is and what he's doing for you. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not, not stealing. Um, those are kinds of good descriptions of a person who's employed somewhere, of someone who works for someone else. Um, and if you're working for someone else, then this is a good ex exhibition of that. Now, there's more to say there. I don't have time to say it this morning, but I just want us to notice that it's not easily transferable to our context. But I think some of the principles about working for another authority are, and so it's worth taking notice of those. Now, as we've been going through, have you been able to identify one thing that applies to you? 
Can you just pick one thing and say, okay, I think that's an area I need to grow in. That's an area I need to move from here to there. It's an area where I need to be saying no to that kind of diet and yes to this kind of diet. Just think of one area. Okay, so that's the content that Paul talks about here today. How about, how does grace train? I want to suggest to you there's a serious temptation here to turn what Paul has been saying here into something that's about works, about pride, about defeat. You know that, that cycle of, I've achieved this, aren't I good? And that despair that comes afterwards of, oh, I've done it again. There's a serious challenge here that in these words that we've heard this morning, these ideals that we've been talking about, that we turn them into kind of a works-based living out our faith. To give you an example, uh, just a brief one, when I got married at 21 and my wife was 20, we had no money. We had to borrow someone's uh, house. So we had a little uh, room out the back of their house for the first six weeks of our marriage. Fortunately, my mum stocked the fridge uh, because uh, we only earned $50 a week. I didn't have a job. My wife was a student and we managed to get $50 a week. Uh, we were really trusting God at that point. <laughs> We've trusted him all the way since, but wow, that was quite some days. Um, anyway, it turned out that the woman in the house, and we, hadn't, we really didn't know her, had this system of training younger women. Wow, what a system. It was meant to be a system which I didn't know about. And the system involved... There was some great biblical stuff in terms of learning from the Bible, etc. But making sure my wife was ready for me when I got home. And so this woman said, if you're going to serve your husband well, what you need to do is to, you need to make sure the house is all tidy and neat. Even when you've got kids, just make sure everything's neat and tidy. And I want you to make sure that you've got makeup on, that you've put a new dress on. Um, and if you're running late with the tea, uh, with your evening meal, um, make sure you cook some onions. Because when he walks in the door, he'll feel like the food is just about to be on the table. Sound interesting? The take the idea of training a younger wife to do something and may turn it into works. Now, maybe I, maybe some of you are like that. I apologize if you are, but I did not see that as an expression of biblical truths. And to this day, I do most of the cooking at home. To this day, if I've got the onions on and Jane walks in the door, we have a good laugh. I say, I'm prepared for you. I'm glad you're home because I work from home and she works outside the home. So that's just the way it works. We can so easily take this stuff in the wrong direction. And so that's why we actually need the grace that trains. See what it says? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, um, and godly lives in this present age. Do you see what's happening there? 
The truth is, there is no health in us. And even when we try to switch the diet, we kind of end up in these cycles of hope and despair, of trying to do things by ourselves. And we find ourselves not being able to exercise self-control, to stop gossiping, or to instruct people in the ways that we've been called to, to walk in the right ways of God. And so we end up in cycles of fear and shame that train us to be obedient rather than grace. But you notice how the grace of God trains us differently. You see the verses say, grace appeared bringing salvation. You only need salvation when you need saving. Jesus put it this way in Luke 15. Those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I have come to call the righteous, but the sin, not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. What Jesus is simply saying there is he knows that we are sick. He knows that there, there is no health in us. He knows it actually better than ourselves. He knows just actually how sick we are. But, and because he knows how sick we are, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. You see the grace of God at work there? You see how grace takes us from that pit of despair and that cycle of self-righteousness and works? And lifts our eyes and says, look at Jesus. He's taken all your sickness to the cross. He's taken all your unhealth to the cross. He's taken it on himself and died in your place so that you can be healed, so that you can be healthy, so that you can live in his ways. Transferring all our unhealth onto him in order that we might be empowered by grace to live his way. And so it's as we are captured by the beauty of what Christ has done for us, by that great physician going to the cross and dying in our place, by giving us health, as we're captured by that beauty and that transforms our hearts and lives, it calls us into a different kind of obedience. An obedience that gives us leaves us trusting in him, asking him to empower us to be the older men, the younger women, the older women, the younger men, and the right people in our in our workplaces, training us by grace to move from here to there, from unhealth to health. Amen.